Welcome to Streamageddon, the podcast that is here to stream Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night. Really, any day of the week is a good day to stream here on Streamageddon. I am your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by our musical guest, Diane Nora. How are you doing, Diane? Oh, never better. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Barlow. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, as somebody who's lived in New York a long time, it's always been a dream of mine to host Streamageddon. And later on this episode, we'll talk about another popular New York institution, Saturday Night Live. It just wrapped its 47th season on television. 47 seasons. Oh, my. I know. And uh, we are going to review very specifically the season finale of season 47, an episode that is officially titled Natasha Leone with Japanese Breakfast, which is just a great episode title. I love that we're right on par between SNL seasons and presidents. Are we right there? No, we're one ahead. We're one ahead now. Time has moved ahead of America. SNL is our new government in more (laughs) ways than one. It's the id of America right there. And we're going to get into that when we talk about the sketches in the season finale of season 47, as well as a little bit of our favorite moments from SNL history. We might even have a bonus little YouTube playlist for you to check out. All that and more later in this episode. But first, as always, we need to start with some follow-up because I, I just have to come out and admit it. In our last episode, I said something I maybe regret. Uh, In our last episode, we were talking about what was coming for network TV in the next season. Uh, Upfronts just happened, where the the networks pitched their upcoming season to advertisers. And uh, we were discussing NBC and sitcoms. And I may have referred to the NBC sitcom Mr. Mayor as like watching Ted Danson watch paint dry. And, you know, you may have said that I I, I have a vague recollection of saying that. And uh, I I just like to add that that show is funnier than watching Ted Danson watch paint dry. And and to be clear, I would watch Ted Danson watch paint dry. He's enigmatic and uh, magnetic all at once. But but more importantly, uh, Mr. Mayor has a great cast. It's grown a lot in its second season. I think it is a, a real charming show with maybe not a lot of substance, but that's okay. It's a network sitcom. And now that I've told you that, don't bother watching it because it's been canceled by NBC after two seasons. The look on your face, Diane. There's only one way to address this. I mean, I didn't even have time to check it out. But, um, you know, sometimes shows come back and or creators come back with new and exciting projects. So, you know, no. <laughs> No. Mr. Mayor is survived by other NBC sitcoms, American Auto, Grand Crew, and Young Rock. I'm so sorry. That was the in memoriam for Mr. Mayor. But thanks for giving it a good shot there. Thanks for trying to put a positive spin on it, Diane. Happy to help. Uh, In other cancellation news, NBC also canceled Keenan, which is really on brand for our SNL episode tonight. If if you missed it, Keenan had a sitcom on on, on NBC called Keenan about a guy named Keenan who is not that Keenan, but is played by that Keenan. And, um, you know, when I describe it like that, I feel like it's not surprising it didn't work out. I never watched it, though I am. I do consider myself a Keenan fan. Oh, yeah. I realized I've been watching Keenan for most of my life. 
I loved Keenan on all that, and of course Keenan and Cal as a kid, but especially on all that when he was a Pierre Escargot in a tub. Oh yeah, it was oh, just yeah. the peak of comedy. Oh well, it's fine if it gets if it lets us keep him on SNL. I selfishly accept it. That is just a, a brief moment I had to share my regrets to Mr. Mayor and an update on what happened in the upfronts. Uh, but we have some other follow-up. We've been talking a lot about uh, streaming news. What is the strategy? What's the deal with streaming news? And uh, there is a bit of interesting information here. NBC, ever popular NBC, has announced uh, something everybody in the political field already knew. Uh, President Biden's outgoing or now former press secretary, Jen Psaki, is joining MSNBC. Everybody knew that this announcement was coming. Uh, they were waiting for the right time to announce it. She's going to be like a commentator on MSNBC this fall. Uh, the more interesting thing to us is they also announced that she will get her own streaming news show on Peacock's MSNBC hub. The hub! I mean, I think that this could be a good seller for them. They've had a lot of success with Nicole Wallace, who was a former Bush administration yes. official. You know, actually having people from their own party hosting shows makes sense if you're going to have people from the political arena hosting shows. Yeah, and and I like I like Jensaki just generally loosely from my experience watching her, and I I could imagine a world where she's like my streaming Maddow. Can't watch Rachel on streaming, but I can watch Jen. I wonder how open she'll feel to criticizing the Biden administration. That, that's okay. Sure, show premieres in 2023, and then after that, there won't be a Biden administration if things continue uh, as they are now. So that conflict of interest will go away. We won't even need to call them administrations anymore. No, it's she'll just, be able you know. to criticize the regime or junta, whatever we call it, <laughs> uh, openly until they disappear her. Uh, but they'll have to find her first in the MSNBC hub on Peacock. Hey, I'm excited for it. And, and we're just going to continue with the streaming news headlines here. There are just so many. And this one uh, touches on a subject that is near and dear to our hearts. CNN Plus. This is CNN. As I'm sure longtime CNN Plus fans know, one of the main attractions of CNN Plus was that CNN Plus had poached Chris Wallace from Fox News. Chris Wallace saying he is fed up with the uh, outrageous uh, shenanigans at Fox News. I'm sure those are the exact words he used. And uh, he was given a show on CNN Plus. This show was called Who's Talking to Chris Wallace? Because it was an interview show, which, okay, but also, do you want to do another pass on that title, guys? Because it sounds like you see Chris Wallace in the corner talking to a, a bearded man with unkempt hair, and you go, who's talking to Chris Wallace? Is, is he okay? I wish they'd gone with, what you talking about, Wallace? That would have been good. Every time I read this sentence, who's talking to Chris Wallace, I thought of the movies, look who's talking. And I was like, look who's talking yes. to Chris Wallace. Look who's talking to Chris Wallace now. It's a whole, uh, you know, uh, series of, of shows. They have sequels, prequels. There's a dog in one. To Chris, to Wallace. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> well, unfortunately, you can't talk to Chris Wallace anymore, or, or you can't see who's talking to him. Whatever. Chris Wallace is stuck in a box. No one's talking to him because CNN Plus was unceremoniously ended. Uh, but at the upfronts, Chris Licht, the new head of CNN, announced that, uh, yes, they're going to keep Chris Wallace around, and he's going to host a new primetime news show on Sunday nights on CNN the channel and that show will also air on hbo max and there you go that is the new wabro disco warner brothers discovery uh that is their new strategy sure you can have streaming news programs from cnn in the existing apps we already have thank you very much I'm trying to imagine what a review of a streaming news show would be, because I think I would just be so angry that we um, would have to change the whole tenor of our show. Uh Uh-huh. We would just be reviewing the the format, the tone. Mm -hmm. We'd be reviewing the camera movements and the graphics, I guess. It'd be interesting to do a review of his news program where we are not allowed to discuss the topic that he talked about, but only the way in which it was. Honestly, that's kind of what a lot of news coverage is. So. You're not wrong. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I loved that graphic. I loved the banner at the bottom. The ticker? The ticker was divine. What's the polling on that ticker? Mmm. Mmm. Well, that that is our, our little bit of uh, follow-up. Lots of interesting things there. But while we are on the topic of Wabro Disco, we have some new news from our friends at Wabro Disco. That's our new funky Wabro Disco Stinger. Uh, do you like it? Tell us by emailing us, podcast at streamageddon.com. And if you love it, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. So speaking of Wabro Disco, they have been making many changes in the Warner Brothers section of the business, previously known as Warner Media under AT&T, now Warner Brothers again under Discovery. And uh, we previously covered some of those changes, a lot of uh, belt tightening, essentially. They're uh, ending scripted mm-hmm. development at TNT and TBS. Uh, They canceled a whole mess of shows at the CW. And now they just decided to pick a fight with a kind of a heavyweight, I think, J.J. Abrams. And according to some new articles from uh, Deadline, and we also read about it on the AV Club, where it was treated uh, with the appropriate level of sass, I think. We'll include those links in the show notes. Uh, But uh, apparently J.J. Abrams and his production company Bad Robot have had a multi-million dollar deal with HBO. Well, with Warner, but this touches on HBO for for quite a while now. And this included a straight-to-series order for a, like epic highbrow sci-fi drama called Demi Monde, which is a terrible name. Maybe it means something in the world of the show, but I'm just going to say terrible name. Uh, that was uh, going to go straight to series at HBO at some point. It's been a deal for about four years now, according to what I read and can remember on the spot. And that is a long time to be developing a show that you are going to buy a whole season of at least sight unseen and is obviously going to be an extremely high budget production because it is uh jj abrams in space all the camera panning all the lens flares all of it uh this is the jj abrams who brought us all the star trek movies that are just blinding shots of light in your eyes and and are kind of fun so maybe this would be good. I don't know. But we might never see it because apparently Warner is uh, looking at their accounting and saying this is a lot of money to spend 
on a show that might not even be very good. And and maybe, this is just me spitballing here, maybe they looked at how much money HBO spent on Westworld and went, we don't need to do that again. So I I do get that impulse and the, and the need to consolidate budgets. But these streamers are going to need IP. And after you've already put so much time and money into a project, to cut it off before it fails seems a little foolish to me. I mean, it might be, you know, nothing. But what if it's the next Lost and you just, you know, trash it? I know. He's a differentiator. You you want programming that differentiates you from the other streamers. And to say, we're the exclusive home of J.J. Abrams' highbrow fancy pants shows seems like a good idea. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned Lost. This uh, would be his first, like, uh, solo TV show development, because he he didn't develop Lost alone, since Alias. And I was a big Alias fan. But what do Lost and Alias have in common? They did not uh, last very long in terms of critical reception. They, They were big hits out of the gate, and then they both kind of meandered into weird story corners that made it hard to keep it going. Uh, and maybe that's a factor. Maybe they're looking at longevity and they don't want something that's uh, going to cost so much to only run a couple of seasons before it gets unsustainable or or just unprofitable. Maybe they, they have some algorithm that says, you know, in the long run, this just isn't going to uh, make back the investment we want it to. I, I don't know. Or they just want to trim everything and make a new mark on on Warner. It's hard to say. I get that, but I think part of the appeal of a show like Lost goes beyond critical reception to I can't stop watching this, even though it got bad two seasons ago, because what's going on with this smoke monster, you know? And if you give me, you know, uh, Alias in Space... I mean, I'm in. You, you had me at Alias in Space. That pitch alone. Yes, I'm in. I'll watch all f- four or five seasons, even the bad ones. Even after there's a time jump and her boyfriend gets married. To a spy? Maybe. Find out. I will stay and find out, even though I think it's a terrible plot decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's how I spend my time. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're listening, David Zaslov, don't cut J.J. out. We are here to eat whatever gruel he feeds us out of his hands. You're just smiling and nodding. Yeah, it's true. That's exactly what I plan to do, if, if, if given the opportunity. Always, always. But that is not our only big streaming service that is making waves. We have so many to talk about. Uh, Disney Plus. Disney Plus premiering Obi-Wan Kenobi this week uh, recently, uh, not so recently at this point, announced that they are going to introduce an ad-supported tier. This has been in the works for a while. People have been wondering, what will that be like on a service that really has a family focus and a children focus? On a service that many people subscribe to just so they can hand their phone to their child and make them watch The Lion King for the 400th time while mommy and daddy try to calm down. Where do ads fit in that? How many ads will we watch? Will my episode of The Mandalorian suddenly be interrupted by an ad for a, you know, Mattel Baby Yoda take-home toy? I don't know. But what I do know is that Disney has announced that they're aiming for four minutes of ads per hour on Disney+, Plus, which is sounds good. That's a pretty low number. 
feels very light. Yeah, it does to me, too. And, and I thought this was interesting. Variety um, and The Verge pulled the numbers on uh, competing services that are ad-supported. How many minutes of ads per hour do they typically show? Uh, so NBC's Peacock runs no more than five minutes of ads for every hour of content. And from my experience watching Peacock, that seems pretty true. It, it's not a lot of ads. Uh, HBO Max has an ad-supported tier, and that runs four minutes of ads per hour and still does not run ads on HBO shows. It just runs ads on everything else. And then mm-hmm. um, Disney Plus, you know, is related to Hulu. Hulu has an ad-supported tier. And and I would say from my experience, too, the ad-supported tier of Hulu is probably the ad-supported streaming service most people are familiar with because for a long time, Hulu only offered an ad-supported tier. And and then when they added the, the ad-free tier, nobody really wanted to pay more. And I don't blame them. So I had ad-supported Hulu for a long time, and I, I got pretty used to seeing what felt like a... A, a decent number of ads, not as many as I'd see on network TV, but definitely more than four minutes per hour. Uh, according to Variety and The Verge, they peg this as uh, anywhere from nine to 12 ads in one hour on your typical Hulu show. So Hulu's kind of the high end of ad per hour, and uh, Disney Plus is falling on the low end, uh, which, okay, I, I, I can deal. Yeah, I mean, to me, those numbers seem so light especially like compared to hulu but also compared to people who watch content on say youtube tiktok instagram reels where you're just inundated with ads so um you know perhaps it's different for people who pay for youtube i don't know i don't pay for youtube but um to do even nine to 12 ads per hour still still seems much lighter than that. Um, so four minutes, I mean, that's nothing. Yeah, I can deal. I can deal. As long as they're integrated well, which is the thing that we've, you know, right. if it, harkened back to if several it times. bursts into the middle of a, a scene, that's problematic. But if it's pre-roll, if it's, you know, uh, decently integrated like an ad break in a normal TV show, okay, okay. Uh, the the other way you could get out of watching these ads while still having the ad-supported Disney Plus, right? You're too cheap to pay for ad-free Disney Plus. Don't blame you. But you don't want to watch ads. Also, don't blame you, but it seems like you need to pick one or the other. Or do you? Because if you have a kid's profile on Disney Plus, you will not see any ads. You will also not see anything above a G rating. I'm so curious about this decision, and part of me wonders if it's because they don't want to monitor any of the ad content. I think there is an element of not wanting to get involved in any controversy around, like, that ad was too salacious for my child, or that ad wasn't appropriate, you know? Yeah, even, like, something that might not be necessarily, like, scandalous. Like, what about an ad for a pharmaceutical or something? Right. You don't want to be in the business of putting that in the Lion King, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's just not the right fit. So I think I, I, I just wonder if that was part of their thinking that they didn't want to go through that process of being more selective about where ads fall. 
Yeah, and they, they also said they'll actively keep ads out of content aimed for preschoolers, even if it's not a kid's profile. And and I think part of that is it's an easy win to say that you're going to do that. It makes you look like you're thinking about the children. Think of the children. Uh, mm. and, and also, at the end of the day, yeah, advertising to kids is a powerful vehicle. As someone who grew up with, like, Nickelodeon, I can tell you, like, yes, advertising to children, they will then scream and make their parents buy them things. But preschoolers have less buying power let's say less ability to articulate i want the thing from the commercial there there is a probably a point an age where it's so young it's not worth the return on investment to to really you know lose cachet advertising to a three-year-old better to advertise to the eight-year-old where okay yeah they they see ads they know what ads are and they know how to ask mommy for you know the grogu lego set right and if the kids get hooked on the show anyways even no matter what age they are yeah. they're gonna want the merch from it so you know uh some of that kids content is an ad for your other disney properties yeah. and for your Disney merch that you already have, your Disney theme parks, yeah. Et keep, keep in mind, Disney Plus is an entire ad. The whole service is an ad <laughs> to go see Disney movies and to go to Disney World. It's all just a big ad for Disney. But you know what's not an ad? Paramount Plus. Why is it not an ad? Because I don't know what it would be advertising. Because who really knows what Paramount is? They're like, yeah, the mountain company. They got a mountain logo, right? Yeah. And then, then somebody whispers, actually, it's just CBS. And they're like, oh, my God, what? We were going to do movies on Paramount, and then we discovered everyone wants to watch Yellowstone. And, you know, Yellowstone is why I bring Paramount up, because in the least shocking news the streaming universe has ever seen, Paramount's global CFO has announced that they will no longer license Paramount content to other streamers, specifically because they licensed Yellowstone to NBC, and now Yellowstone is the most popular reason people seem to sign up for Peacock, which is not the streaming service Paramount would like you to start. I wonder if they've been listening to Streamageddon, because I believe we offered this advice. <laughs> that is the obvious answer. Paramount Global CFO Naveen Chopra is one of our listeners. And I don't, you know, Naveen, you can admit it. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and, and we will uh, shout you out on the show anytime, anytime. You are welcome to our free advice, but you are also welcome to pay us back with a review. That's the least you could do, Naveen. Thanks, Naveen. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. Uh, okay, keep moving through news here, because we're about to get to the big boy, and we're going to have to spend some time talking about Netflix. But before we get there, there's a topic I saw just today that is uh, kind of Netflix tangential, because there's been a lot of talk about people canceling Netflix. And there's a lot of talk in the streaming world in general about churn. We all know what the word churn means. means we're making butter? That's correct. Uh, it, it is how we make the butter. And the butter in this case is a delicious, frothy, rich uh, feeling you get when you cancel a subscription service. That, that rush of power you get when you cancel a subscription. That's the buttery churn that we're talking about. And uh, churn is a real fear. 
in the streaming world because people can cancel streaming services a lot easier than they could cancel cable or satellite in the past. And so all this talk of churn led a uh, research group in the United Kingdom called Omdia, kind of looks like Omedia, but it's missing some letters, so Omdia. Uh, Omdia did a study in the UK specifically, so again, this is about the UK, sure. Uh, They found that in the last year, people in the UK canceled 45% more streaming services. Okay, that's a large number of, of cancellations. Cancellations went up by 45%. They did resubscribe to streaming services at an astounding 84%. They they saw this as a, you know, it was a boost in cancellations and people choosing at least one streaming service to cancel. But it was immediately followed by a large an even larger uptick in people resubscribing to services, which suggests what people were doing is, let's say, canceling Netflix because they wanted to tune into the new Marvel shows on Disney, which came out last year, and Disney Plus was the new kid on the block last year. Then they watch those Marvel shows, and Disney goes into a little gap without a new Marvel show, and so they cancel Disney, and they resubscribe to Netflix for Squid Game. And then Squid Game ends, and they hear that there's a new Marvel show coming on Disney, and so they cancel Netflix, and they subscribe to Disney to watch Hawkeye. And then the new year comes, and there's no more Marvel show on Disney, so they cancel Disney, and they resubscribe to netflix i'm so impressed with these people keeping up with all of their subscriptions it's maddening do they have a spreadsheet i would love if you are one of these people who stays on top of everything and knows that like on may 15th i'm canceling netflix and switching over to you know just hulu for three weeks and then when stranger things is back blah 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 i want to know your secrets Please write to us. Tell us your strategy. How do you manage because, this? Yes. Right? For about four months, I've been like, oh, right, I need to cancel Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> and then you're like, well, I have another month of Paramount+. Plus. Maybe I'll check out that Twilight Zone reboot. It sounds good. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, the overall streaming number, just if you measured, like, how many people are subscribed to streaming services, went up over this 12-month period they, they studied. So people were not just canceling streaming as a concept they were picking and choosing the individual services for the shows they wanted to watch at any given time another very interesting thing from this study they they looked at trends going forward what streamers do they think will be on top and uh, they say in the uk despite the you know turbulence netflix has seen that netflix will still be the top streamer in 2026 which is super optimistic for Netflix and for humanity to assume we'll still be here in 2026. I love that. And I was surprised to hear it after the quarter that Netflix has had. But I think what a lot of the news that we get about Netflix in the U.S. doesn't always fully uh, cover their impact globally worldwide because that is one of their strengths is they are the most global streamer still they were global before anyone else realized what a a benefit it is to be global and they're still expanding in that region in that region meaning all regions too in in all the regions except this one we're in but all the other regions right so i think that that could be you know a silver lining of this of this horrible quarter for Netflix. 
Yeah, and I do think maybe part of what they were seeing in these trends here with the resubscribe rate is that you leave Netflix when there's a shiny new thing you want to see somewhere else. Because Netflix is one of the easiest ones to cancel and one of the most expensive ones to have. So you hear there's a great new show on Peacock. Let's pretend someone ever told you there's a great new show on Peacock. And uh, so you go, well, I'll cancel Netflix this month. I'll watch that new show on Peacock. And then I will cancel Peacock and resubscribe to Netflix. I think Netflix is the home base that most people come back to. They are happy to drop it when there's something else, but when there's nothing else, Netflix is the comfort food. Absolutely. And there's only so much new content that we can all take. Sometimes comfort food is just what we're here for. Yeah. And Netflix, one thing they've done really well is just churn out a lot of mid-tier content so that when you get back, even if the old things you used to watch, like Schitt's Creek, is gone, because as we covered previously, Schitt's Creek moving to Hulu, now they have Seinfeld. And you go, oh, okay, I'll stream Seinfeld instead. Now they have 22 seasons of a dating show where people paint their face or something. And you go, okay, I'll put that on in the background. That Netflix is good at just having such a deep catalog and, and a decent recommendation engine where, you know, it's, again, the one you'll probably go back to if you don't really have a specific thing in mind. As a Netflix lover, this really calmed my nerves. Good, good. Don't worry. It's going to be okay for Netflix. Maybe. Probably. Because now we have to talk about the Netflocalypse. So much Netflix news this week. Let's see how much we can get in. Uh, first things first, you're li- if you're listening to this on Friday, the day that this show comes out, first of all, congratulations. You're a super fan. We love you. Second of all, today's the day. Stranger Things Season 4 Volume 1 is out. It is here. And it has been spoiled. It has been spoiled very specifically by um, a series of Target stores, mostly, it seems, that uh, merchandised the Stranger Things Season 4 Monopoly board game a week early. And so people just were buying this, again, let me repeat, Stranger Things Season 4 Monopoly board game, which includes uh, chance cards. They're not called chance cards. They're called Hellfire Club. Uh, But in these Hellfire Club cards, or maybe Hellfire Club's community chest, I don't know. These are the things you have to buy the Stranger Things Season 4 Monopoly board game to find out. Uh, But these cards featured spoilers in in the description of why you get $20 from every player or why you go directly to jail. They just featured spoilers from the season. And the Duffer brothers who create Stranger Things are furious. I mean, I can't believe that someone let this slip. (laughs) It really does seem kind of negligent uh, uh, there's so many chain it, it, the people in that chain there because obviously like some people at netflix licensed stranger things and gave these plot points to some people at uh, who makes monopoly now hasbro and uh, mm-hmm. and said yeah okay you can use these there's an embargo on when you can reveal the details and then somebody makes the game and they hand that off to somebody else who sends it to the retailers and then now somebody at target has like an embargo date and what if they type in the wrong number what if they just don't tell the regional manager about the embargo date and they they show up a, a week early so that they're, you know, in inventory and they're just like, stock it, put it on the shelves. There's so many weak points in that chain. I'm like, it is w- was making a Stranger Things season four monopoly worth it if this is all the ways it could go wrong for you. 
guess the question is if someone was like, oh, I guess it is a spoiler, but put it out anyways, the nerds won't care. <laughs> Those people you know do I mean? not know nerds then. You deeply do not understand nerds if you think they won't care about spoilers. Well, also revealing that it includes spoilers probably will make some people buy it who might not have. I, you know, that's the conspiracy theory. There skin. is that Target was like, "We're going to sell a shitload of these." Pardon my language on this family-friendly podcast, but what doesn't move product like spoilers and uh, you know viral marketing on Twitter when everyone starts tweeting photos of the cards from the game because that is what happened. Honestly, I would rather get together with friends and play the Monopoly version of Stranger Things <laughs> than watch each of these stupidly long episodes, well, that gets which to the, I hear are lovely. The other details, Stranger Things is out, the reviews have hit, and while we have not had a chance to watch it yet, because, uh, you know, shocking news, we do not record this the day it comes out because that would be magic. We record it a couple days earlier and then edit it because that's how the magic works. But uh, we haven't seen it yet, and I don't know. I might watch it this weekend. I've uh, seen the first 11 minutes or something which they released and is very action-packed. Uh, but the reviews are, are generally positive about this season. They actually make it sound uh, like there's a breath of fresh air in in the story, in the characters, in uh, the, the nostalgia, which is the real um, selling point of Stranger Things. Uh, but, but, they also mention that the episodes are crazy long and get longer as the season goes on. And that answers the question, how are they spending $30 million an episode on uh, this season of Stranger Things? It's because each episode is a movie. This makes me think of the Harry Potter books when later, as the books went on, they were each like a thousand pages, even though they're each the one year of these, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. of this child's life. And I always wondered if that was like, oh, we just stopped editing her. We just, well, now you can do whatever you want. You're, you're so successful. Too, you, know? you can do whatever you want. Well, th yeah. you know, I like this Hands comparison. Off. But it suggests that Netflix has ever edited any of their original programming or given any notes to someone to make it shorter or punchier. And I just don't think that that ever has happened. I can't prove you wrong. So. I know. I know. I tried to think of an example really quick, but uh... we talked about this a bit in a previous episode when the Hollywood Reporter had a big expose on uh, the kind of internal turmoil at Netflix. One of the people mentioned in that article is uh, Netflix's Bella Baharia, who is basically one of the most powerful people at Netflix. She is in charge of their original content now, and she does seem to be pretty hands off in terms of feedback. Let's say. Uh, mm -hmm. But she's in the news this week because, Diane, you pointed out to me, she's one of the 100 most influential people, not just at Netflix, just people, according to Time. According to Time magazine. And they do this cutesy thing now for these influential people where they have another famous person write up their little mini profile. And this one was done by Mindy Kaling, who does have a Netflix deal. Uh also has a show on HBO Max. Um, I really like Mindy Kaling's Netflix show. I also really like Mindy Kaling's HBO Max show. Uh, but the way that she uh, speaks about Bella Baharia here is just that she is like a, a champion of um, creators from underrepresented backgrounds 
And um, that part was, you know, encouraging and certainly a different spin from what we'd heard in The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah, I thought it was it was a nice piece and we'll include a link in the show notes, of course. But it's interesting to see, uh, especially see people, you know, outside the, the very nerdy world of streaming and TV production to, to recognize that Bella Baharia is sort of the, uh, in Wizard of Oz speak, the man behind the curtain right now. That, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of attention is paid to Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, who are the co-CEOs of Netflix. And, and they do steer the ship. They are, at, at the end of the day, the buck stops with them. But they're not running the day-to-day operations of the, the actual uh, streaming originals. They are just uh, really entrusting Bella with that. And I think that's a, a real interesting position to be in because she has uh, got a lot of power there, to put it mildly. Yeah, and to go back to what you were saying about Netflix being very hands-off with its creators in terms of editing and stuff, you know who loves that? TV creators. Yeah, they <laughs> who do. don't want to be getting a bunch of network notes. So, you know, it's not surprising to hear that among a certain uh, clique of celebrities who are making new television, she's beloved. Yeah. But, you know, Netflix is an all beloved. I uh, I would say there are some people who do not beloved Netflix. And so <laughs> here's just a headline that caught our eye this week. I'm just going to read you this headline. It is from the AV Club. The headline is, Netflix carves out niche for itself as the home of transphobic comedy. And uh, if you think that this headline is about Dave Chappelle, I have great news for you. It's not. It is actually about Ricky Gervais. So if you're a fan of Ricky Gervais, I have terrible news for you. He is now also making really weird, not funny, transphobic jokes and then trying to act like he's in on the joke and that he's not transphobic, but then undercutting that by adding a punchline at the end of that that is also transphobic. I read this. I looked at the joke. I was baffled as to what is going on in Ricky Gervais's head. And and furthermore, why Netflix is not remotely concerned. I understand if they're like, well, you know, Dave Chappelle is a bajillionaire. He makes us so much money. He is a star attraction. Uh, we love him. And we're willing to sacrifice some goodwill for that. But for Ricky Gervais? Really? Really? For him? I mean, I do think, obviously, Ricky Gervais has created some programs, particularly The Office, that, like, have, you know, significant staying power. But I don't think that's because he himself is uh, beloved. (laughs) So uh, I think this is a horrible miscalculation as a business concern. And I I hope that that proves to be the case. Um, I wonder if part of it is also that, like, you know... uh, with the the Harry Potter verse, you also are dealing with uh, terrifying transphobic comments and actions taken by J.K. Rowling. So, you know, it's not like people necessarily have a good alternative if they want to, say, boycott this kind of content. Unfortunately, it seems to be spreading at an alarming rate or at least to be accepted at an alarming rate among huge cultural icons uh which is just completely unacceptable and really disturbing and i think we'll have and we're already seeing it have significant 
legal consequences, significant consequences to people's health and safety. Uh, It's just so upsetting. I don't know what they're doing. But um, yeah, beyond the fact that people might not have somewhere else to go, it's just not good comedy. Yeah. What killed me the most is the joke was baffling and bad. It wasn't even like, well, if I agreed with him, I would find this joke funny. It was more like, if I agreed with him and had brain worms, I would find this joke, like, um, not funny so much as reinforcing my beliefs, which I would then laugh and go, yes, Ricky Gervais believes what I believe. But that is not even funny. That is that is just um, pandering. And again, it's not funny. Also, I mean, do you watch comedy to be like, yes, this is what I already think? No, it's like, oh, wow, I hadn't considered things that way. Thanks for making me laugh at my own foibles, you know? Right, and this isn't this isn't making me laugh at my own foibles. This isn't pointing out any foibles that I have. I'm accepting of people for who they are and what what they need to be because it is what they are inside. That That's not a foible. That is being an empathetic human. You, you know, it, the joke here is, you empathetic humans, you're all idiots. If if the person doesn't have a dick, they then then they're a woman. And if they do have a dick, then they can't be. I don't understand. I don't understand where is the funny. I think that the reason you don't understand is because it's just not there. It's bad business, I hope. It's bad ethics, I know. And... It's completely unacceptable. All these streaming services need to do better. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And uh, Netflix uh, doesn't seem to be interested in that. Because our last little Netflix note uh, this week, they they recently sent a memo to employees and kind of updated the language around applying for jobs at Netflix that that explicitly said, uh, you will be expected to work on things you disagree with. That the part of working at Netflix is you're going to work on things or you may be asked to work on things or work for a company that makes things that you fundamentally disagree with. And in, in one way, from like a, a employment perspective, that's not an unrealistic ask, generally speaking, to say like, you may not agree with everything your company does, but you work for the company. But it's obviously being put out because of these controversies around Dave Chappelle. And and that is such a terrible reason to make that part of your policy, to say, oh, after all this time, we've realized you'll need to work on some things that you don't like, you know, like all of the, the transphobic stuff, that specifically. We're to make you work on transphobic stuff. Are you cool with being forced to work on transphobic stuff? Because that's the only reason we're telling you this now. It also seems like just bad management in terms of employee relations. You know, obviously, many Netflix employees have spoken out against the transphobia in a lot of this content. But that, you know, to say, oh, you might be asked to work on something you disagree with is going to say then when you disagree with it, you're not allowed to express that publicly. Like, that seems like a hazy legal area. It just seems like it's set up to cause later problems between Netflix staff, who we've talked about on the show, are unhappy, and, you know, leadership. So I, I really am rooting for Netflix in so many ways, but 
this makes me want to be one of those people who drops their sub. Who makes it makes you want to be one of those people who says the sky is falling at Netflix because it is the Netflockalypse. A little levity there at the end, because uh, now we have to seamlessly transition into listener feedback. Something that we all always love is some listener feedback. We love to hear from our listeners. Podcast at streamageddon.com is the easiest way to get in touch with us. And uh, to start, I got an email from listener Buterson, uh, and this is a two-part, so break it down. Part one, you know, we were talking about the rise in Disney Plus numbers in our last episode, that Disney Plus had like a really, really good quarter, a lot of growth, beat expectations. And Buterson was uh, keen to a detail we missed, and that detail is that Disney in India uh, has rights to cricket on Disney Plus. And in in these other markets overseas, India and uh, basically all the other overseas markets, uh, uh, any content that would be not Disney branded is still in Disney Plus under another tab for Star, which was originally called Hot Star and is something that Disney integrated into Disney Plus overseas because overseas there is no Hulu, right? So to, to summarize, in the U.S., uh, Disney Plus is just Disney stuff and anything else is on Hulu or ESPN Plus. So it's broken out here. Overseas, it's all in Disney Plus. There is no ESPN in India. So instead, they have Cricket, which is extremely popular in India, baked into Disney Plus. And that caused a spike in Disney Plus subscriber growth in India specifically. Uh, Buterson added the point that in the Indian market in particular, all the streaming services, uh, for the most part, are really cheap. That, that that is a real uh, cost-sensitive market. I've heard this before, that the streaming services really underprice themselves there in order to grow. And his question was, at what point does that uh, sell-it-at-a-loss mentality uh, no longer make sense? You know, uh, will we see a price increase in the U.S. sooner rather than later just so that they can keep adding subscribers at a, you know, loss uh, leading rate, uh, subsidizing subscribers overseas. And I thought that was an interesting question. Is the U.S. market, which is pretty saturated, going to be asked to absorb the price increases first because we are not as cost-sensitive as a growing market like India, where there's a lot of market share to be gained still, but the consumer is much more price-sensitive than we are? That's so interesting. I've actually heard that question posed before about Netflix. So I love thinking of it in the Disney context. And I hadn't, I hadn't read about the, the cricket uh, moving to Disney. That's amazing. I imagine that's a huge market. Uh, and if it's more affordable than watching it on whatever local cable options there are, um, or perhaps just more convenient if it's something people can say, watch on their phones. I'm not sure, um, you know, if that would make a significant difference too. Yeah, sports is the next big exclusivity play for a lot of these uh, streamers. We've seen this with like Amazon has, I think, Thursday night football in the U.S., uh, there are a lot of questions about who's going to pick up DirecTV's Sunday Ticket, which is the kind of all-inclusive NFL package. But currently, to get it, you have to be a DirecTV satellite subscriber, which is super limiting. Uh, but that is uh, potentially up for a streamer to take. So there, there's a lot of uh, movement in the sports streaming 
side of things, but sports rights are expensive. And so at what point, where do you make up that money? It will bring in a bigger audience, but then who pays for that? Is that audience growth alone going to pay for your cricket rights? Or is that audience growth great, but it doesn't actually pay for the extremely expensive cricket rights you bought? So then where do you make up that difference while you continue to grow that audience around that new uh, you know, entry point? Interesting. I, yeah. I don't know the answer. Neither do I. And then I wonder, too, how much transference there is between, like, folks who might come to Disney Plus for cricket, let's say, and then also decide to stay and watch The Mandalorian, you know, mm-hmm. um, or other streaming content, or if they're there just for cricket and then... And then at the end cricket, of the season, they yeah. drop and resubscribe right. later, which could be part of that churn conversation. Mm. Uh, our second question from Buterson, uh, also on Disney Plus, you know, we talked about uh, the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness coming out, and that's doing really well in the box office. It does rely a bit on knowledge of some of the Marvel series that have been airing on Disney Plus. In particular, Wanda Maximoff from WandaVision is a major character in Doctor Strange, and to know what's going on with Wanda, you would have, you would need some knowledge of what happened on WandaVision. Uh, and part of the pitch for the, the Marvel shows, as I understood it, was always, they, it's a flywheel. It'll get people to get excited about Marvel, it'll set them up for what's coming in the next Marvel movie, so then they'll feel like they have to see these shows to see the next movie and the next movie will tee up something that's going to happen in a spin-off on Disney Plus and then they'll feel like I have to have Disney Plus to see the spin-off and then that spin-off will introduce another new character who's going to show up in the Marvel movies and suddenly you have this cycle between the shows on Disney Plus and the movies in theaters where Disney makes a killing on the movies in theaters truly uh, and so I see the logic there Buterson's question is, you know, is that too much to ask of the audience? At what point are casual viewers going to start to tune out because it's too many things you have to keep track of? Uh, and and I don't think we're there yet based on the uh, massive box office returns Multiverse of Madness is getting. But I think it's an interesting question. At, at what point is it too complicated? Are you like, wait, do I have to watch like X, Y, and Z in order to understand this movie I'm going to go to this weekend? I hear that question and I think that it is a possibility in the future. I have to say I'm one of those people who went to see the new Doctor Strange movie and did not see or did not ever watch WandaVision. I think that really? I would like WandaVision you more than like any WandaVision. other Marvel show. I know it's about TV, <laughs> but um, or so I hear. It's about but TV. I, you know, there's so much Marvel content, and I, I, there's so much other good television that when I'm choosing what to watch on television, Marvel content is not my first choice, to be totally honest. Though there's plenty of Marvel content that I enjoy. I did watch Loki, and that was fun. Could have been gayer. Could have been gayer. I did, you know, I I still got the basic plot of Doctor Strange as much as the plot to that movie is completely graspable because, you know, all of the the plots of many Marvel movies, wow, I'm just probably going to anger some people, but are already convoluted 
And um, yeah, I gotta, you know, I gotta say, like, I, on the one hand, I see Buterson's point, and on the other hand, I really see your point, where it's like the Marvel movies make as much sense as any Marvel movie is going to make anymore. The era of them telling a tight little story ended like four Iron Mans ago. And two Captain Americas ago. Like, each Marvel movie is so wrapped up in its own convoluted, um, you know, cinematic universe that that they do a decent job of just bringing you along for the ride. So even if you do not understand, you follow through as much as you can. And even if you know it all, is it going to make that much more sense? I don't know. Yeah. I, I just enjoy it more when I'm like, oh, this is a fun ride. Oh, I can't believe they got the rights to this song for Guardians. And like, you know, oh, cool. Natalie Portman's here. That's it. That's all I need. That's not a spoiler. Nope. That's the right answer. <laughs> Thank you, Buterson, for the questions. Uh, we love them. Keep them coming. Did Did you have some feedback as well? I did. I spoke to listener Tabia, who is Canadian and was speaking to me about a show we mentioned last week called Transplant. Uh I should say two weeks ago called transplant that we were guessing the plot of. I was completely unaware that it was a Canadian program, to be honest, because as I mentioned, we were guessing the plot of it. And um, so what have you sent to me was, uh, I just want to share quickly that transplant is like our Canadian pride and joy. (laughs) And it's the best rated, most award-winning drama series in the country right now. But Haha, ha, I love that it's nothing in the U.S. Okay, but wait, so what I is it about? What is it about? Did she answer the question? She did. So it's about um, a Syrian doctor who um, is a refugee. and uh, Oh, my is, God. Um, He's a transplant who does transplants? He is, yeah. Why didn't we think of that? That's, of course, why you call. Oh, I got to see the show now. I mean, I've heard it's good. So they, my follow-up to her was, is it good? And and yes. So I, I'd really like to see it. Um, and I didn't mean to be that American person. And look at us, forgetting cricket, yes. forgetting the good We're expanding our horizons. We talked about the United Kingdom this week. We talked about all of the Queen's dominions, basically. We love you, Canada. We do. <laughs> no, we're we sorry. Do. Thank you for sharing that. I am thrilled to know more about Transplant. And uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear from overseas. If you're listening to us overseas, what is streaming like where you are? What is the hot show that we think is a recycled NBC idea from Dick Wolf that they just put a new coat of paint on? I, I'm really sorry for assuming Transplant was a rejected Chicago Med spinoff. Same, but I'm delighted to hear it's not. Ah, wow. But you know, speaking of NBC... We have a little TV show to talk about this week, a little review to do, and it's a show that airs on the National Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, you, You might have heard of it. You might have seen one of its previous seasons. There are a few. I am talking, of course, about Saturday Night Live. That really jazzy SNL theme is from the 25th season. Do you know how many years ago that was now? Because when I did the math, I got upset. Ooh, 22? 22, 22 years, years ago. ago. That's really upsetting. That's oh, that's so upsetting. I know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so Saturday Night Live, 
the venerable institution, just ended its 47th season. And uh, this was a notable season finale because four major cast members have left. Uh, Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant, Kyle Mooney, and Pete Davidson. Although if you read about it in any of the news stories I saw, the headline was, Pete Davidson and three other people are leaving Saturday Night Live. And I, I just need to pause for a moment and say, no, no disrespect to Pete Davidson. Truly, zero disrespect to Pete Davidson. But you have, the the headline is backwards. The headline is absolutely backwards. The the pride and joy, the spine of Saturday Night Live is Kate McKinnon and A.D. Bryant. I, I don't know how you don't lead with that. I completely agree. I think that part of it is that Pete Davidson has become such a page six darling that mm-hmm. like any time he steps outside, it's in the New York Post. It's Pete Davidson, a man who openly admitted in this final episode is rarely on Saturday Night Live. Right. Leaving Saturday Night Live. That was the least surprising of the announcements. When You tell me Pete Davidson's leaving. I'm like, yeah, I could see that coming. He's doing a lot. He's, his career is going gangbusters. He's dating a, a, a Kardashian. Uh, you know, yeah, I could see his, his dance card is full. He does not have time to do a weekly sketch comedy show anymore. So that one, not surprising. Kate McKinnon leaving. She's been there a long time. I, I'm not genuinely surprised, but I am heartbroken. And then AD and Kyle Mooney, again, you know, they've been there a while, but the, those feel like the bigger news to me. That's a three big regular players to lose. Kate, Kyle, and AD are staples in Saturday Night Live. Uh, and I, I cannot get over it still. I'm mourning still. Absolutely. I did a very informal survey of folks I know via Instagram and to see who people were going to miss the most of those four players. Uh, And overwhelmingly, people responded, Kate. Though I did have several people reach out just to tell me that they don't like Pete Davidson, which, like, I understand Pete Davidson neutrality. Exactly. Like, huh? You know, he's not even. Uh, anyway, I, 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 I find I enjoy a, a Pete Davidson. Me too. I, I actually, when yeah. when he shows up for a sketch, when he is in a sketch, I genuinely find him funny, and I often enjoy the sketches with Pete Davidson. But they are few and far between. They are. They are. Or they're all just all getting cut. Cut for time. No, that's Kyle Mooney's uh, wheelhouse oh. right there. Poor man. He's so funny. But but we're he getting is. ahead of ourselves because we want to actually just review the season finale. I think this is such a, a fun idea. We've broken it down sketch by sketch. We're just going to give you our impressions. What is going on at SNL these days? How did they send off these amazing cast members? Let's just talk about uh, season 47, the finale featuring Japanese Breakfast, great musical guest of Saturday Night Live. So, of course, we have to start with the cold open, typically political, typically maybe my least favorite sketch of the night on Saturday Night Live, if I'm being honest. Sometimes they knock it out of the park, but lately the political cold open has maybe not been their forte. Uh, But, but this was a treat, I think, because it was uh, a very unusual cold open. They did one of their recurring bits, Close Encounters with Colleen Rafferty, which is, of course... (laughs) Kate McKinnon's maybe signature character. Uh, Also notable, because rarely is the guest host in the cold open, but this week we had guest host Natasha Lyonne in the cold open as one of the uh, people being interviewed by the Pentagon for their close encounter with the aliens. 
Uh, I always love the the Close Encounter sketches, even though it is a real tried and true formula that they have done many, many, many times. I I don't care. There's something great about when they when they hit on a recurring character that just jives so perfectly with the performer. I could watch them do it every week, and no matter how old it gets, there is something so satisfying about watching them be that character and play that 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 tune. It's like play the hits, you know. Absolutely. I also think that Tasha Leon is a talented enough guest host to um, be able to be in a cold open and still then, you know, bounce around and do. She slotted in perfectly. And and, uh, Kate McKinnon did what she always does with the guest hosts when they're one of the people in that sketch. She tries to break them. Like you can see, right. she you can see her do her physicality. She is like intentionally trying to get the guest host to to fall apart. And Natasha Leone is a pro. She just rode straight through that perfectly. I she nailed her place in that sketch, which is to be kind of one of the straight guys, straight men, to use a, a you know, weird term we use for for the people who are not the goofy one in the sketch. Um, and and I also love that Aidy Bryant is part of that, and how, and pretty much always has been. It, it, it felt it felt very right as the opening for the two of them. And then obviously the end of this one, spoiler alert, people. I guess I should say spoiler alert for a sketch comedy show that you could just I don't know you could stop right now and watch the the clips on YouTube. Your choice, your world, listener. Um, at the end of this, Colleen Rafferty goes with the aliens, and that seems like where she always belongs. Yeah. It was so pure and so perfect, and it gave Kate McKinnon such a sweet moment in character to say goodbye while clearly also saying goodbye to the show and, and the audience. It, it, that was the moment where I went, yeah, even if the headlines don't know that Kate's departure is the real news, SNL knows that Kate's departure is the real news. This is, um, she's a once-in-a-generation talent. Yeah, and it felt like an acknowledgement from SNL that even though this might not be political, it is topical in the sense that the breaking news at SNL and for people who watch it is that Kate's leaving. Yeah, I thought it was such a good such a good choice and noteworthy because while Kate appears in other sketches later in the episode, all her other appearances in the episode are pre-recorded. This was her actual last moment doing SNL. Oh, I, ho- I hope she comes back to host. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I think she will. She I'm will. I'm sure. But I, I thought a great opening monologue. And, and m- one of my uh, notes there was just, you know, they nailed it as, as the right way to start a finale. Agreed. Yeah. It, it felt like a, a nice summation and it had a sweetness to it that I think is a good note for SNL these days. I agree, because when they try to do kind of snarky political satire, it's not their strong suit outside of Weekend Update. And even in Weekend Update, it's hit or miss. And and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel uniquely SNL. We're like this felt, you know, the, SNL has a strength when they're kind of warm and generous. Because guess what? Sketch comedy is often better when the people are, when the performers are generous with each other. You know, like being generous with the audience, being generous with the performers actually benefits it most of the time. And uh, it's really nice to see them play into that sometimes. Absolutely. But of course, that brings us to our opening monologue with Natasha Leone, who also nailed it. Yeah, this was such a fun monologue. I think that it's always great when your host knows how to make fun of themselves and knows what the thing is 
about them that everyone makes fun of and isn't like you know gonna be really insecure about that and also like knows the format of the monologue is basically a tiny stand-up set and mm-hmm. knows how to move through that really smoothly and and does not get distracted or fall off. It was a classic one in that it really was a little stand-up set. Didn't do any of those crazy things where they're like, now I'm going to take you on a tour of the studio. None of those gags. The, the, the thing closest to a gag was her bringing out Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph, who are close personal friends. Fred Armisen, very right. close personal friend, former partner. Um, and, and one... Really sweet to see them both. Two, the tiny gag they threw in there was that Fred and Maya were working on their uh, Natasha Leone impressions. And that's basically the only gag we got out of them. And then they were gone. But I do want to say, Maya Rudolph nailed her Natasha Leone impression. It, it knocked it out of the park. I Fred's was funny, but not accurate. Maya was like, it's a dynamite sweater. Cockroach. And I gagged. I loved it. I have to say that so many SNL alum, I feel like their careers tend to be kind of um, uneven where they are like incredible on SNL and then maybe don't do as well after or they do great afterwards. And you're like, wow, they were so underperforming on SNL, which may not be at all about them, but just might be about their time there and how they worked with the writers and which part of their work got picked up and seen. But Maya Rudolph is just like, she was great on SNL. She continues to be fantastic. She's so good. Yeah. And and is great, effortlessly great. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that, the back to back of the cold open and that opening monologue put me in a really good place. I was like, this is a, uh, uh, an episode that knows what it wants, uh, to do and um, knows what kind of comedy, like who it wants to showcase and why and how, and has a host that can carry it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great for an end of season. Yes. Yes. And of course, after the uh, opening monologue, we, as we often do, we got a uh, pre-recorded kind of uh, fake commercial. They love their fake commercials, often after the opening monologue. This one I called Stupid People Vote PSA because it was a pretty funny bit where people were explaining, you know, confessional to camera, like, I'm stupid and I vote. I agreed. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't have extraordinary depth or anything. No. But it was fun. It didn't feel too long, with which sometimes the commercials do. Uh, I, I do like their fake commercial format. I think it's one of their more successful recurring formats. But um, sometimes it's like, ooh, I needed 15 seconds less. Yeah, often, <laughs> um, often. Yeah, often. But um, I was wondering, actually, it really reminded me of a classic SNL sketch. Do you remember this one, Chris, with Gilda Radner? I am kind of obsessed with Gilda Radner, who was the first official SNL cast member, um, where she did the Extremely Stupid People public service announcement. Do you remember it? No, SNL is so old that that predates me. Yeah. Not to to imply that you're that old, but no, that one does not immediately ring a bell. So Candace Bergen and and, uh, Gilda Radner do this bit where Gilda is just very stupid and similarly like uh you know just like in a very goofy uh, very Gilda for those who know her way it's on it's on uh YouTube but um 
And they have a PSA for what they call the rights to extreme stupidity league. Um, and it's one of those classic sketches that this felt like almost a, a bit of a nod to. And it made me wonder, oh, was this like an intentional homage for those of us who like know our SNL and have been watching it for too many years? Or was it just that like, you know, if you do this for almost 50 seasons, you do the same joke sometimes. Stupidity is timeless. It just comes up again and again. It really does. I like that. Uh, is that going to be in the YouTube playlist uh, that we hinted at earlier? Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely can be. I, so I'm making a playlist of uh, the favorite sketches that either yeah come to mind watching this episode, this finale, or of my favorites from these four performers. Um, just for those who might not watch that much SNL or might not watch that much SNL recently, maybe unlike me, you have very busy Saturday nights and bully for you. But uh, <laughs> if you're like, wait, who's Kyle Mooney again? Check this out. We'll give you some highlights. Oh, we will have some Kyle Mooney clips for you. Let me tell you, Kyle Mooney has a deep, deep personal place in my heart. He's treasure. Uh, he really is. Um, well, you know, uh, pause a second here to mention, y- you watch more SNL than I do, and I've seen a lot of clips from this season, but I realized while watching this whole episode beginning to end that this was the first time in season 47 that I had seen the opening credits, because I had to text you and go, who is Aristotle? <laughs> There's a cast member named Aristotle? I've never seen this person in my life. It's a great name. <laughs> it's a fantastic name. It's very memorable because as soon as that popped up on my TV, I went, oh, I have to know more. How long has there been this cast member that I have no recollection of? While I am bummed to see some of these guys go, you know, Kate 80, they get a ton of screen time. Uh, so, you know, maybe this will be an opportunity for some of the young bucks to really shine and um, show us, you know, what their SNL looks like. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to check it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, this did rekindle my excitement about SNL in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, But moving right along, our next sketch uh, was a black and white throwback to a Yankees radio broadcast sketch with Natasha Lyonne on a lot of methamphetamines for a a cold, telling Mm -hmm. weird stories about Babe Ruth eating a child. This one didn't fully work for me, I'm going to be honest. No, and it kind of ended randomly, which is classic SNL in a lot of ways. Like, they don't all hit it. They don't all work. Um, I love Natasha Leone's commitment to the absurdity of this character they stuck her in. Like, mm-hmm. she was eating the scenery, and that was enough to get through it. That, that was enough for me to go, sure, I'll watch. I, I'll make it. Well, obviously, I had to watch because we were reviewing it. But I, it was enough for me to follow along and go, yeah, she's doing something fun, even if I don't really understand the sketch yeah old-timey voices are funny it was a little bit weird the continual references to cold medicine because as we're about to get to the next sketch started with references to like nasal spray and i was like is this gonna be like a weird motif of the <laughs> or, episode or are they is this like uh sponsored content for nasonex I, I was confused uh, by that too because yes our next sketch which was funnier. I enjoyed this one. Opened with Kenan Thompson asking uh, the audience at like this uh, cheap hotel somewhere. They're they're performing a little. They're a band at a bad hotel somewhere, and he's asking them if anyone has some Nasonex repeatedly. Because he has 
seasonal it's like a summer gig so seasonal allergies yeah yeah because it was a summer bash they were playing at the summer bash I didn't understand that joke at all. But then the rest of that uh, sketch I thought was uh, pretty funny. I, I The note I wrote literally is, this is both terrible and genuinely making me laugh out loud. I agree. I did have a couple big chuckles, even though overall I was like, I'm not sure I know what the premise of no, this is. <laughs> I actually don't. I cannot tell you what the premise of this sketch is. My other note was Keenan and Natasha sell this like it's brilliant. And that was the answer there is the sketch I don't understand and didn't make a lot of sense. But Keenan and Natasha were so good that I was laughing and was like, well, they're convincing me that there's something funny going on here even if I don't know what it is. Also some strong, uh, quick performances from Chloe Fineman and Bowen Yang, who I think are real standouts of this current cast. They really are. Uh, but then we get to, I, I think the, uh, the sketches started to pick up again in terms of like overall quality. And we had another mm-hmm. pre-record. This was, uh, Andrew Dismukes narrating a, a, a video about, you know, a prom from 2002. So the tone of this was somebody looking back on their prom from, you know, uh, now 20 years ago and saying, what a crazy, you know, journey all of us have been on. Everyone's gone in different directions in their life. And so there are these funny little, you know, it zooms in on different people dancing at the prom. And it's like, this person, they wound up doing this. And this person, they wound up doing that. And they kept coming back to Natasha Leone's character and saying, the less we say about her, the better. And then they'll hint later that she like, had an affair with somebody and then they'll hint later that she like stole money from somebody and then at the end of it you find out that Andrew Dismuse who's narrating this all was murdered by her like 20 years ago and that's why he's narrating it uh, which you know it wasn't a groundbreaking comedy but I, I thought that was great tonally because it's like prom season it's the end of the season of SNL it had that retrospective nostalgic tone to it and it took a nice twist at the end Absolutely. And it builds, which I think that they can continually SNL has a stronger record at escalating the jokes in their sketches when they're pre-recorded, which it's just easier to do. So yeah. that's not a knock on any of their writers. Uh, it's very hard to, <laughs> to perform live, I imagine. So, you know, but like getting that nice little button on the end with a with a good surprise chuckle was was satisfying yeah yeah i liked that one and uh right from there they went into the musical guest japanese breakfast i like japanese breakfast the the artist i I, i've never had a specific breakfast from japan but i assume i'd like that too but no i i liked this and i liked the setup they had for her and i thought that it was a a fun number what what else do you want me to say good music yeah the kids yeah, today well, and their music. I like it. I feel like in recent episodes or recent seasons of SNL, they've done more to kind of transform that sound stage for yeah. the musical performers. And um, they really did here. There was like some cool lighting. She had great costumes. Um, even though the music itself was strong, it wasn't just like a novelty act. But I uh, appreciate that because... I think that that stage is not always the best for musical performers. The acoustics aren't great. So uh, it was really nice um, to hear someone sound good. An artist who's actually good sounded good. It was great. Oh, you love to see it. And uh, you know what else a lot of people love to see? Weekend Update. Because after the musical guest, as we often do, we went into Weekend Update. 
And, uh, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about the quality of Weekend Update's jokes in a world of uh, so much nightly political comedy and excellent work on Last Week Tonight uh, with John Oliver. Uh, what I took away from this, before we get to the the guests who came on Weekend Update, which really kind of, I think, were the point of this week's Weekend Update, um, the jokes that hit the hardest for me where I was like, that's a good joke that's really on topic, were all the jokes about baby formula. Because that's a real thing going on right now, obviously. But also, they just slid them in there, kind of slyly, like, tossed in a baby formula punchline, and you're like, ooh, that's sharp. Yeah, and I like when Weekend Update goes sharp. I think that I have some complaints overall. And again, making a weekly comedy show, I imagine, is hard. The folks who write SNL are some of the best comedy writers in the world, but the format is really challenging. And so sometimes the level of satire that you get when you make it every week is just not the sharpest. And... um I don't know why, but a lot of their political content really bothers me. It feels like it's like making fun of the wrong things about something like uh, they did a sketch. I believe it was last week about um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, which just really landed like a ton of bricks. I mean, just yeah, that wasn't great. What I can't believe. I, I don't know what they were thinking, probably trying to get online views, but um, it was distasteful and bad um and yeah like like it seems like their satirical targets are off often with their with their comedy and they felt like when they actually get a good swing in um like get a good punch up and it really hits especially from someone like colin jost who like has a very privileged looking face which Mm -hmm. they joke about constantly it really works yeah yeah actually and uh, Colin had some good jo- jokes in this episode, actually. I, I Both Colin and Michael had some nice stuff in this Weekend Update. I did feel like this Weekend Update, uh, all the good jokes for Colin and Michael were before the uh, guests came on Weekend Update. And everything after that was just filler to get us to the next guest. Because they really stacked this Weekend Update with a lot of guests. Because they wanted to have Alex Moffat come in as the guy who bought a boat. And I love the guy who bought a boat, even though it's a super one-note joke. The way that they have taken it over the years to the point where now he goes on these kind of crazy rants that have, like, nothing to do with buying a boat anymore. And then it's like, and that was the guy who just bought a boat. There's something about he's gotten so good at that character that I enjoy it, even though it it has probably overstayed its welcome in some ways. Uh, I really love it and i just i mean there's just something so enjoyable about bad puns yes yes and <laughs> especially this, this, when they're in poor taste yes this poor it, it, it hits all these boxes of like there's something uh, enjoyable about bad puns in poor taste and jokes in poor taste but in order to laugh at it the person who's delivering this poor taste humor needs to be somebody who is like openly despicable who you look down on and has some horrible flaw essentially and the fact that he has a small penis is part of the joke but really the flaw is he's compensating for it in all the wrong ways Right. Absolutely. And that is what's so funny about the guy who bought a boat. And Alex Moffat is so good at that character. I I was thrilled to see him and did not expect him in the season finale because Alex Moffat's not leaving the show. It it kind of, in a way, made me go like, oh, my God, is this a send off for Alex Moffat, too? They brought back guy who bought a boat in the season finale. What does that mean? 
Oh, I'd be sad because I'd be I sad think too. that I think that Alex Moffat is someone who is continually really strong, but I'd love to see more from. Yeah, I agree, actually. Uh, but he was just the first of the guests. The second set of uh, guests we had, uh, you know, they usually do two. They did three this time because of uh, Pete Davidson. We'll get there. But in the middle, they had uh, Bowen Yang, national treasure uh, in training, Bowen Yang, and A.D. Bryant as the trend forecasters. And I texted you when I saw this because it was clearly a piece that had, a bit that had been done before, but I haven't seen it. And so I was like, what is this? It's so funny. And it, it clearly has happened before. And now it's never going to happen again because AD's leaving. And I feel deprived of something I just learned about. It is such a good bit. Okay, so I hope that any SNL fans who know better than me will correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that the trends that are the trend forecasters first appeared in January of this year. So I think it's really only the third performance of this so maybe when AD comes back to host i'm just willing please, it into being please when, please <laughs> when AD comes back to host uh they'll do it again but um it's AD and bowen uh in this very kind of camp faux chic attire uh for forecasting the upcoming trends of the season and uh there are certain bits that they repeat in it um which uh they all the i think every time they've said that michael che is going out yes yes <laughs> which is just you know i i like when they make fun of the hosts on weekend update it's a time-honored yeah. tradition but you know they they also predict things like uh what are the trends this summer for fruit or babies or time uh and uh they're very silly but those two are so good at committing to a bit and going you know to a 12 out of 10 that it's very very funny and they're they're so in sync together it's so well rehearsed like they they speak in unison so much during it and are, are pitch perfect that is part of the execution of those characters is so sharp uh I, i'm thrilled and i'm thrilled to know i can at least watch a couple more of them uh on youtube now uh one thing that i found very funny, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally about this. It ended with a bit of a heartfelt moment sending off A.D. Bryant mm -hmm. because this was, uh, again, she appears in a pre-recorded sketch later, but this was her last moment live on stage. Um, and I did get the sense that Bowen was feeling a bit emotional about it because they do they, they clearly get along really well and they do this this bit together so well. And so this little emotional moment happening at the end where they're kind of saying goodbye to A.D. in character. And the um, audience is like applauding. Everybody's like having a moment. And they cut back to Colin, who's going to deliver the next joke. <laughs> and the title card next to him says, uh, it has an Arby's logo and says, manager arrested for child porn. And, and Colin just sits there next to this for like 15 straight seconds, waiting to tell a terrible joke about an Arby's manager arrested for child porn that he can sense is going to land like a lead weight. And that's why I'm like, I think they did that on purpose because it was a funny thing to do to Colin. I feel confident they did one of their continual bits uh, between uh, Colin and Michael Che is um, they make each other tell jokes they're not allowed to tell. And of course, that's, you know, puts Colin in the squirmiest of positions. So I think that they've really realized their strength with him is playing off of his 
inherent bro yeah persona yeah yeah uh, well, okay, that brings us to the end of Weekend Update. Uh, Pete Davidson came out for what was just basically Pete Davidson saying goodbye. Yeah, and Pete Davidson does those bits yeah. every so often on SNL to, like, you know, just catch up with people. And he's basically doing stand-up, which I think is probably what Pete Davidson's strength has always been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. It was it was exactly what I would expect for Pete Davidson's goodbye on the show. Uh, but that brings us to a question you asked in our show document. Um, favorite Weekend Update hosts of all time. Who Who is your favorite Weekend Update host of all time? My favorite Weekend Update host of all time is Norm MacDonald. That is maybe the rightest answer. I, I you know, you, you know you grew up in the 90s, if that is your answer. Right? I mean, but I also just think that his irreverence was a really good fit for the format. And it makes me wonder if we had had him longer or if he had found one of these slots sooner if he might have been a successful person for one of these news format shows right if if he could have gone on the jimmy fallon or uh seth meyer's journey right right yeah and he has a certain letterman to him yeah in the like crustiness that he brought to it that was just so funny and i liked that while so much of snl right now feels like it pulls punches uh when it comes to its politics he didn't yeah so yeah ah that's a great answer do you have a fave you know, in in my nostalgia brain, it's Norm Macdonald in a lot of ways, because that is the, the first one I remember. And I do have all the same feelings about Norm that you do. Uh, I, when you asked me the question, my gut went to, oh, obviously, it's Tina Fey and Seth Meyers. I loved it when Tina Fey and Seth Meyers hosted Weekend Update together. Uh, but uh, much like the uh, famous um, uh, movie Kazam, starring uh, <laughs> which not Shaquille O'Neal, but you know Kazam, the movie that didn't exist. This is a great uh, story here. Mandela effect. <laughs> yes, it turns out no. Uh, Seth and Tina never hosted Weekend Update together. I am conflating when Seth and Amy Poehler hosted Weekend Update together and when Tina and Jimmy Fallon hosted Weekend Update together, which are two very different eras. Of those two eras, the uh, one I obviously like more is Seth and Amy. But I dream of a world where there was an era of Seth and Tina. Yeah, I think that would be really strong. Though I wonder if they're a bit same in terms of because they're both so uh smart and a little of the like less zany one yeah i wonder if they would balance well energetically i want to uh, see it i want to see I'm it the answer. Is, they need to prove bring us. it to me <laughs> Pro- prove it to us guys you've got the time please yeah no i i absolutely adore tina fey and she was great on weekend update i love seth and amy too um you know yeah yeah all good answers. All good answers. Uh, well, okay. That brings us to our next sketch, 9.10 to 5.15, a play on 9 to 5. Uh, I, I I enjoyed this. I have no notes. Yeah, it was fine. Kind of forgettable. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. It wasn't bad, but it was kind of forgettable. Yeah, I felt like it didn't completely monopolize successfully on my nostalgia for 9 to 5. No, and it, it did just kind of fall apart in the body humor of Natasha Leone playing a corpse, a weekend at Bernie's, 
basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which was kind of funny to watch because it's live comedy and you're watching a person try to play dead while people like move their body around like a puppet. Okay, that is kind of funny, but it's not, it's particularly memorable, no. No, I mean, it feels like the part of the show often where, like, they probably were choosing between a few things and they're like, I guess we'll do this one. It, you know, it puts the host in an interesting place. We get to see Natasha Leone do physical comedy. Okay, yeah, I understand. Yeah. And not a bad decision. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. But then we go right back into the musical guest, Japanese Breakfast, who had a lot of fun hitting that gong in the second song, which I also deeply enjoyed watching her hit. There was something extremely satisfying about watching her dance around this gong and hit it with all the enthusiasm in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh, does she have shows coming up in Brooklyn? I know, I and would she go. Does. I would go. No, okay, <laughs> go. we can make a plan offline. Uh <laughs> But then we get to the last sketch of the night, the 10 to 1 sketch, as they often call it. And uh, this one, pre-recorded, maybe not the funniest sketch they could have chosen for the last one, but absolutely the correct one for this episode, because it starred Kate McKinnon and A.D. Bryant with a cameo from Kyle Mooney. It basically checked all the boxes, and this sketch was called Grey Adult Pigtails. And it's about the beauty of being a quirky old person with adult pigtails and gray hair. There you go. I love older women, and it felt like they weren't punching down at them. Like they were I like, did not feel like we they were get your weirdness. Down. Yeah, no, that's what I liked about it. Is it did not feel like it was punching down. It felt like it was celebrating the weirdness. Right. I and I like when SNL goes beard, especially near the end of the night. Like, yeah. let us be a little silly. We're all getting, uh, you know, that sleepy slap happy. Yeah. Um, uh, my, I think my favorite line from it was. <laughs> Uh, when you want a hairstyle that's that people see and immediately think, I get it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then Kyle <laughs> Mooney shows up seemingly with just a gray uh, beard, like pony in his beard, but then reveals that he also has a ponytail in back. And so he has gray adult pigtails, but in the other direction. And I was like, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. We've got to talk about Kyle Mooney more because he was underutilized in this finale which couldn't be more kyle mooney for snl correct though he did create a lot of the video content that we love even if he's not on screen as much um and he's just really funny and maybe a little bit weird for mainstream which is why he's one of my favorites same same reminds me a lot of uh julio torres who uh, went on to create Losa Spookies, which is one of my mm-hmm. favorite shows that is lost in the pandemic limbo of being renewed but not having more episodes. And he created uh, sketches like Wells for Boys about... <laughs> We're going to have to include that in the the playlist. Uh, You know, the Fisher-Price well for boys. If you have a moody boy who needs to sit by a well and ponder the big thoughts. And that is one of my all-time favorite sketches. Yeah. I really think that I hope SNL continues to go weird. I think they have the opportunity to with um, Sarah Sherman. She's so strange and going interested in going to like seems like form challenging places which isn't somewhere that SNL often goes in their sketch and I think would serve them to to explore that territory 
Yeah. Why I'd not? Like, I'd got, like to see more of that, too. You got time. You got new people. Try some new things out. I'd love to see them kind of swing, swing and miss a lot in the new season because they've got a lot of underutilized talent we've talked about. And uh, and they're great. Like Chloe Fineman, we mentioned before, is a, actually grown into a fantastic cast member. For the first couple of years she was on the show, barely had an impression of her, barely even thought about her. And um, in and true, truly like kudos to her and the writers for like finding her place and finding her voice. And now I'm like, yeah, you need to like elevate some of these these cast members who I haven't thought about that much, but who are really 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 good you don't just stick around out of inertia at snl if you're not really good you don't make the full cast you bounce out um and they've got a a pretty decent roster of talent now they just need to try new things to find find their colleen rafferty right like yeah they didn't find colleen rafferty for kate mckinnon right away but when they did they were like ah we've we found her voice in a character that that really like kind of defines what a kate mckinnon sketch is uh and and now they need to just experiment with a lot of the newer cast and find those those characters those those weird ideas for them or even to like rediscover some of their classic talents like you know obviously keenan's been there for ages He's so good and I think more versatile than they give him credit for sometimes when they're creating yeah. stuff. And maybe that's his choice. But, like, I would love to see Keenan do some fun, new, weird characters that are different than what we've seen him do before. We know he can do the stuff he does so well. So, like, try something new. He's so talented. Yeah, I would say the same for Cecily Strong, who's been getting yes. a lot more great stuff. Uh, and and was previously on Weekend Update for a while and intentionally left the Weekend Update desk because she wanted to do more sketches and more characters. And that has been such the right call for her because she's so consistently good. And I think she is a real uh, key person to fill in that kind of Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant uh, gap where there's this these iconic female cast members who have left and Cecily is every time she was on screen in this episode I was like yes I'm so glad you're still here Cecily because you're so good she actually did my favorite bit of the season which was when she went in character on weekend update as the clown who got an abortion when she was 23 it's a really good one I'll put that on the list for you guys too if anyone missed it it's one of their best topical bits in ages yeah, and actually, I love ending on that note because we talked we talked a bit of smack about how SNL handles topical humor, but it's not that we don't want them to. It's it's that it's hit or miss, and I think one of the takeaways here is, you know, they gotta try stuff and they gotta swing big swings. Like I think the clown who got an abortion at twenty three was a kind of risky character and a big swing for them to take, and it was the right one. And so the last thing I want them to do is be like, mm, topical, yeah, it doesn't, it's lame, or people get upset. I that that's not what I wanna see. Uh even if a Johnny Depp Amber Heard sketch makes my skin crawl. Yeah. And I mean if you're if you're gonna do something topical say something and mean what you say you know don't don't have elon musk on i did you know i did appreciate them making fun of elon musk and his latest controversy which we are not going to get into in weekend update because there was that moment of like yeah even if they let you host that's not an immunity card that's not a get out of jail free in the future card 
Uh, and it was nice to be reminded that, yeah, they're not in the cult of Elon. They're just, yeah, we let him host because that's good TV. Right. And the writers might not be the folks who are deciding right. who gets to no, host. I don't think they are. Oh, but there you go. We've gone long. Unlike SNL, we cannot cut for time. I mean, I edit the show, so in theory, I could cut it for time. But what fun is that? So instead, we've run long, telling you so much about what's going on in the streaming universe this week and sharing our love and passion for sketch comedy. Because who doesn't love some good sketch comedy? But if you, listener, love some other things on TV, maybe another show or another streaming service you want us to check out or talk about, you can email us, podcast at streamageddon.com, or you can find us on Twitter. Twitter, I'm at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora. Diane with two N's, not another N in Nora. A uh, total of three N's if you're counting. I just want to be there for our math fans. Uh, and as always, you can leave us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. We would love you for doing so. And until next week, uh, keep streaming. And uh, well, you know, it's been a, a magical time. I just want to say thank you. Thank you to the cast. Thank you to the crew. Thank you to everyone. This is a dream come true. Have a fantastic summer, everybody. Yeah.